Hello, and welcome to this episode of STATS, the podcast where we share the accomplishments of the Department of Surgery at Baylor Scott White Medical Center in Temple, Texas. I'm your host, Dr. Lonnie Gentry. The STATS podcast is sponsored by Dr. Harry Papa Constantino, the chair of the Department of Surgery. In this episode, we talk about conflict in the healthcare setting with Dr. Tony Picchioni. Dr. Picchioni holds a PhD in psychology and is a licensed counselor. In his long and distinguished career, he has been a counselor, a university professor, and a consultant for both national and international companies. Currently, Dr. Picchioni works as an educator for Baylor Scott & White Health, splitting his time between Baylor University Medical Center in Dallas and Baylor Scott & White Medical Center here in Temple. Among the many hats that Dr. Picchioni wears at both hospitals is teaching and coaching on conflict resolution. Dr. Picchioni, thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much for inviting me. I look forward to uh, having this opportunity to have a conversation about a topic that some people find a bit uncomfortable, which is, of course, the nature of interpersonal conflict. Dr. Picchioni, generally speaking, of course, you've worked in a lot of settings. Generally speaking, how would you say working in the healthcare setting differs from some of these other areas you've worked in, if at all? Well, I do think there is some difference. The big one uh, that is apparent to me is that, of course, I'm dealing with very dedicated, committed individuals in healthcare. Oftentimes, these folks are, of course, uh, engaged in life and death decisions and in behaviors that really involved the welfare of of the people who trust them and come to them uh, wanting to be healed, wanting to be made better, whole in some way. So, that's not to say that people in the private sector, let's say, are, do not have you know, aspirations and, and integrity. They do, but oftentimes it's more of a bottom line kind of uh, a world uh, in terms of the marketplace, in terms of the private sector, whereas in uh, healthcare, it is about the patient first. And so there's a, there's a difference, I think, in focus. We mentioned that much of your time is spent in the field of conflict and working, helping resolve conflict and things like that here in in the hospital setting. What drew you to the study and work in the field of conflict studies? Well, it sort of evolved as time went by. First of all, I was trained as a clinical counselor. And so there's no getting away from the fact that what you're going to do for a a great deal of your time in counseling is dealing with conflicted uh, individuals, conflicted relationships. So conflict is just simply uh, the bread and butter in many ways of what clinicians deal with in terms of therapy. So that was simply something that became obvious from the beginning. But in addition, I got, for example, invited, I think it was about 1979, 1980, by the um, domestic courts in the Dallas area to be a part of the very first class to do training in mediation, which is the attempt to try to be a third-party neutral facilitator uh, in terms of bringing parties to agreement with regard to, in this case, in the case that the training focused on uh, in terms of um, divorce, custody, visitation, those issues. I found myself very interested in that, and so I continued my clinical work, but also then did postgraduate work in terms of uh, mediation training, eventually uh, going to SMU and beginning what became our very successful master's program in dispute resolution. Mm -hmm. How would you define conflict? 
<laughs> that's a complicated subject. We could probably spend the rest of our interview just on that topic. First of all, maybe the per- first place to begin is uh, to break conflict down. Uh, are we looking at intrapersonal conflict, I-N-T-R-A, conflict that you know we all have to some degree in terms of our um, histories, our memories, our own life uh, stories? Then there is structural conflict, which is societal or organizational rules, policies, the inequities in society. Uh, lots of conflict, obviously, that can be discussed on a, a macro level, on a uh, on a, a structural level. But the area that I focus in on, uh, and that we do a great deal of work in in the Baylor uh, healthcare system, is on interpersonal conflict. That's the conflict that is created between. Uh, and in the space between individuals based upon their perception uh, and their communication and uh, the issues that uh, get played out in terms of people who have differences uh, that become and escalate into conflict. Uh, Now, that hasn't defined conflict. Again, if if one is looking for a definition of conflict, I'm reminded, I guess, of the um, work of scholars like uh, Wilmot and Hawker, who would define conflict as, first and foremost, you have to have a relationship with someone, right? It's hard to have conflict if you don't have a working relationship or some kind of a relationship with somebody. Though we need to be careful about that. In today's world, my students remind me that a relationship could be uh, ecological. In other words, we have a carbon footprint, and that can be a relationship, as well as the fact that I have a face-to-face a working relationship with another individual. There has to be then some kind of difference that will emerge. There's a threshold at which side, uh, at which at a time something of significance takes hold. And I am now not only uh, finding myself in difference with the other side, I may then thirdly be finding myself in opposition with regard to that difference to the other side. And then let's kick in a couple of psychological elements here communication, verbal and nonverbal, become a part of the uh, contest, as it were, between uh, folks with regard to their issues. And then uh, maybe the the part that may frighten people the most about conflict is that there is an emotional component to it. And so that uh, becomes the energy, the driver. So again, uh, any working definition of interpersonal conflict probably involves all of those elements, relational, some kind of difference, some kind of difference of significance that becomes communicated, that becomes then uh, something that has strong emotions attached to it. So it's a a very layered, very complex um, issue. Uh, One last comment here is to make the distinction between what might be a difference and a conflict. A difference would be just simply that. It would be, I think it's a pretty day today. You may think, well, it's a little bit too cloudy. We probably aren't going to get into any real uh, contest here. But if that difference becomes a dispute, that dispute becomes single issue here and now driven. And by the way, that has within it the seed of its own solution, which is you want to not let the sun set on a dispute. Uh, It's single issue. It's not going to get any simpler than that. So work on your disputes as they come up. But a conflict, in answer to your larger question of definition, is something that will have a history uh, it'll be layered, as I, I talked about it a moment ago, and it will be something that in the in terms of the way the mind works becomes more rigid and much more difficult to manage because there's a relationship between conflict and time. 
uh, dispute is present here and now. We have lots of those in the course of the day. But a conflict are lots of unresolved disputes that do not get settled. And as a result, the mind, in a sense, becomes more rigid. And that's how we begin to develop stereotypes and say, oh, yeah, I know about so-and-so, he's so-and-so, or she's such-and-such, because, again, it was unresolved, and we begin to look at them in terms of a fixed category, and we stereotype uh, that individual and uh, respond to them in a predictable a way that doesn't really open itself up to a solution. It's very difficult to resolve conflicts. It's much easier to resolve disputes. That was a long-winded answer, but <laughs> I think that may sort of set the stage. I think so. We typically think of conflict as destructive. Is there a constructive side to conflict, <laughs> and how would you describe the difference? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Lonnie. That uh, First of all, we think of the word conflict as a negative word. And we need to get beyond that. It's actually in Latin, a word that means to strike against so that the images, the metaphors that we picture in our mind are usually fairly negative with conflict. But that's unfortunate because there is constructive conflict as well. A major researcher in this area was a man by the name of Morton Deutsch up at uh, NYU, studied conflict all of his career. And he basically said he could identify what he thought were uh, the signals or the behaviors of destructive conflict. And basically, that profile is one in which somebody is overly competitive, is very uh, engaged in selective perception, is um, goes up what we call the ladder of inference. In other words, they move further and further away from the reality of the situation and begins to begin to make inferences about the situation that really probably don't really fit, don't match. On the other side, the constructive side of conflict, he found that there were characteristics in constructive conflict where people were more creative. They tended to mutualize the problems that they dealt with. They tended to be people who could accept doubt. In other words, there's probably more than one right answer. And in fact, it was it's possible that, uh, you know, I may actually be even wrong. And they're open to that. In other words, they're they're much more permeable kinds of personalities, and uh, they're they're they they know something about negotiation, uh, which is not about winning, but about mutual problem solving. They know how to do the give and the take. But what's perhaps most interesting to me, anyway, about uh, Deutsch's research is not only that profile of constructive conflict, creativity, mutual problem solving, negotiation, and doubt. But what is also interesting about Deutsch's work are the preconditions that lead to that. And it was those preconditions, or it is those preconditions, that I think we should probably pay more attention to. In other words, you need to live in an open system with lots of fluid communication. Okay, that's that's, that's simply a prerequisite. Secondly, you need to be able to take large issues and be able to break them down into smaller, more workable pieces so that you can you can actually um, do something with them. A, a single issue is by default almost always a competitive issue. And what you want to do is to break them down so that the, the different elements lend themselves to something that we sometimes technically call link, linking propositions or linking statements so that you can sort of have A and B and create C out of that. You want to be able to be flexible in your thinking and open to uh, uh, other possibilities. You want to be able to uh, remain as objective about the issue at hand 
uh, even though there is no thing as pure subjectivity, we all tend to you know sort of operate with psychological truth, thinking that we see it as the way it is. But again, being open enough so that one is entertaining through dialogue. Uh, uh, possibly the ability to uh, take a look at an issue from uh, multiple sides. So would I be correct in saying that the difference between destructive and constructive conflict is not so much the subject of the conflict as it is the the people that are coming to the conflict? Well, you could put it that way. I would probably frame it a little differently. I would say it's the process. It's the how you work the conflict that may be more significant than the substance itself, that a lot of people get themselves into trouble because they don't know how to dialogue. They don't know how to mutualize problems. In other words, they don't know how to do the how part, and they try to win the what part, and that uh, can get them into some trouble. How do humans typically respond to a conflict episode? Yeah, that's that's a good question. And a complicated one as well, um, in which what we do is we need to uh, think about, for example, maybe the way to play with that is to think about how we communicate. And so let me present maybe a model here that might help us to understand that if we sort of look at the anatomy of a conflict conversation. And to do that, I have to back up and give you some information here. Uh, Conversations are basically built around either one of three ways in which we build what we call the conversational floor. About 80% of what we do in conversations is what we call connect talk. Uh, And that's just uh, the kind of talk that allows us small talk, but it's not small talk about nothing. It's really about everything. And it has its own rituals and procedures for self-disclosure, structuring time, that sort of uh, stuff. And so that's the ebb and flow of daily communication. But Moving into more troubled waters, which is getting to your question, we move into what often is referred to as control talk, and it is often thought of in two ways, light control talk and heavy control talk. And again, if one were to look at light control talk in terms of, again, specifically speaking to your your question, we begin to try to manage the other person with regard to what it is that we're trying to convince them of in terms of our own point of view. We're very sensitive, whether we know it or not, to saving face of trying to uh, uh, persist in our own story, which we believe is obvious. Uh, And we make the mistake, I think, oftentimes of thinking that the other person's mind is very much like my own mind. And so why don't they get it? And why don't they get on board with me? And we take any kind of resistance as a personal affront. uh, And we begin to drift in the direction of blame statements. And you get blame statements with you when you start hearing that word you a lot. And differences are beginning to to be uh, presented as positions. And so in that sense, we're we're beginning to see that things have now uh, reached a what I call a threshold point. And uh, we begin to move into a more competitive uh, kind of communication, uh, which we call heavy control talk. And in heavy control talk, you'd recognize it. I'm sure we've all done this. Uh, it's, It's much more competitive. It's much more about I have the truth. You don't. Uh, there's less warmth in competitive talk. Uh, strength is more important than warmth. Uh, we're not open to options and alternatives. 
we tend to operate uh, very much out of our feelings instead of our more rational mind. You know, you've, uh, people who have read emotional intelligence are familiar with the concept of what we call the uh, amygdala hijack that takes place. Uh, we increasingly begin to use threats and attacks as a, a way of perhaps uh, responding to somebody. And so, again, critical labeling, making commands, accusations, blame language, all of those things now are the signals of uh, a situation that has escalated and deteriorated into something that is now is perhaps a full-blown conflict between two parties. There are other ways to look at it, but I like looking at it from that communications way because you can see us going from, again, a connect talk to control talk light, control talk heavy. And what's missing in all this is another type of talk, which perhaps we can also talk about briefly, and that's going to be something that actually uh, does not come naturally. Control talk and connect talk are very natural. We learn those from our parents, from the environment. What is not natural is dialogue. And dialogue, this third form of talk, is how we might be able to take things to a level, uh, a platform in which we begin to really start thinking about solving problems when differences do emerge between people. And of course, differences emerge all the time. Before we get into dialogue talk, let me ask you about emotion and conflict. Well, that's the scary part of, uh, for a lot of people, uh, conflict. Uh, many people are actually conflict avoidant because of uh, feeling like their emotions may get the better of them. But what we know is that if you look at the research of Antonio Damasio, for example, the neuroscientist and others, what we know is that we're basically a feeling creature that thinks not a thinking creature that feels, that we feel at something like 170th millisecond, takes a quarter or half a second to put together a complicated thought. So that, again, our mind, the language of our mind-brain system is basically that of feelings. So in, a, uh, in, a, in an exchange with another person in which differences have now emerged and, and we're very invested with those differences, uh, they're an extension of self, and now we want to win. We play sort of a zero-sum game in some ways in our head. What happens is that uh, instantly the amygdala in our brain changes a, a number of things. It changes, for example, uh, the different neuroleptics in the brain. Uh, we now know that it takes 90 seconds to try to come back to homeostasis in the brain. Uh, your mom may have said count to 10. We now know that really you should count to 90. However, if uh, an episode follows an episode, follows an episode, follows an episode, you can see that that 90 may be 180, maybe 360. So it, it can extend out over time. So brain chemistry is altered. We know that messages are sent down the spinal cord to the adrenals and all of a sudden stress hormones, glucocorticoid and adrenaline and all the other kinds of uh, stress hormones are now beginning to be pumped into the bloodstream. And that that uh, those uh, stress hormones, because of the conflict, may remain in the bloodstream for days, keeping one in an agitated state. And then and only then does a message get transmitted to the frontal lobe saying whatever it's saying with regard to feelings, with regard to the situation in the frontal lobe, which is the rational part of our brain-mind system, comes into play and tries to then to engage in some kind of form of regulation. But by then, I have opened my mouth, I have said something to you, and the result of that is that because of a social phenomenon known as reciprocity, you being an automatic pilot as well and instantly defending yourself will reciprocally come back and perhaps 
counter my attack with a counterattack on your own. And you can see how this whole thing can then begin to escalate and two people can really uh, find themselves doing real damage to their uh, working relationship with one another as a result of that. So emotions flood the system and can take uh, some time physiologically for us to return to um, a calmer state. Let me just throw something in here. John Gottman, major researcher, uh, used to be at the University of Washington, has done a lot of research on communication and conflict. What he found, it found a number of things, a couple of things we should throw out on the table here. One is that you have a very short window, to use Gottman's term, to repair the damage in a relationship. Uh, He found that uh, within 48 hours, if you did not try to make a repair to the relationship, and that doesn't mean you you acknowledge the other person as right, but you do allow the other person to realize that the relationship is more important than the issue, that if you don't try to repair that in some way, then that becomes more permanent. Okay, so a week later, a month later, a year later, that's really hard wired into the brain. And that's going to be problematic. Now, keep in mind, we're not synchronized. Notice I said a minute ago that it could take days for stress hormones to get themselves worked out in the body, depending about uh, depending upon the amount of agitation somebody has uh, gotten themselves into. And yet Gottman is saying you have a very short term, 20, 48 hours to try to repair it. The other big uh, thing to mention about Gottman, and there's several, but the other thing to mention about him is what he calls the five to one ratio. In other words, we need to make five positive, what he called bids to every negative bid uh, in order to stay in a, a balanced relationship. So if you say something critical to me, uh, somehow we need to reestablish at least five positive bids or pieces of communication back and forth in order to get back to baseline. Problem sometimes is that you don't know what those five bids perceive uh, that the other side will perceive. So you may have to throw out 20 behaviors in order to get to the five. And so you begin to see how costly conflict, interpersonal conflict can be. And again, uh, if you're in continuing relationships, how damaging this can all be. So relationships can be repaired, but it does require quite a bit of effort. Yeah, it has to be intentional. Remember, we are basically fundamentally creatures of habit. Uh, we have an unconscious mind. About 99.9% of what goes on in our minds are is unconscious. So we're an unconscious creature uh, and we're a reactive creature. <clears throat> so if a, a relationship is valuable or you realize that you're going to be dealing with me tomorrow or in the future, and so you want it to be on a plane that would obviously be productive, then it, you have to move from unproductive thinking to productive thinking, or to put it another way, you have to go from habit to intentional thinking in which you are focused on it and saying, you know, I'm working on my relationship with Lonnie. I intend to show gratitude. I intend to make statements and behaviors that will be part of that five to one ratio that uh, Gottman is talking about. Mm -hmm. Moving into the healthcare setting specifically, how does disruptive behavior get defined? Well, yeah, that's uh, one of the things that I certainly have been a student of since I've been with Baylor for the last uh, eight or nine years, is to look at what may be called disruptive behavior. That's behavior that uh, causes, I think, high levels of distress among healthcare uh, providers. Uh, It affects their morale. It affects the work environment that people find themselves in. It undermines, uh, obviously, productivity creates problems in terms of uh, 
commitment to their jobs, t- higher turnover. Uh, and of course, most uh, perhaps importantly, it can undermine the whole question of of care, of sustained care, patient safety. So uh, it is costly. I mean, behaviors such as what are we talking about? Things like yelling or uh, ways in which people may not fully be aware that they're intimidating uh, others, condescending language, berating, disrespectful language, anything that could fall within the domain of abusive behavior, uh, physical, sexual harassment. Uh, There's just a whole spectrum, anger, a whole spectrum there that you can look at that would, in fact, uh, indicate that things are not as healthy as they need to be. Unfortunately, the data that we have, and there's there is quite a bit of data out there. If you look at the literature in this area, the statistics are somewhat alarming. That I mean, that uh, the numbers are fairly high. Uh, I mean, over fifty percent in terms of nurses who uh, hold concerns with regard to how they're being treated by not only doctors but other nurses as well, and of course, uh, doctors who are trained to be very individualistic very competitive uh, than having to work in collaborative environments. Uh, And so really working on their interpersonal skills and their communication styles become very, very important. So it manifests itself in just uh, the quality and safety of patient care and in terms of the total environment that everybody finds themselves working in. When disruptive behavior is allowed to continue, what's the impact on the workplace? Well, as I suggested, it can be uh, pretty severe. In other words, people can leave. People can file complaints. People can uh, become clinically depressed. People can retaliate. So in terms of responses, uh, anything from passive to active, uh, from uh, exiting to creating hostile work environments, uh, you just have a whole range of possibilities. If you, and, and the danger is that if these things are allowed to just fester, that you can create what everybody knows to be a toxic work culture. And that toxic work culture, if not addressed, eventually, as odd as it may sound, actually can become the norm. And so people just work in it day in, day out, and they're not happy. They're just trying to get through the day. They're not communicating information back and forth, which can be very dangerous in terms of patient welfare. And they may be playing games with regard to what we call triangulating conflict, which is not dealing with the source of the conflict directly, but going to others and and, and, and talking about the problems they're having with others and creating triangles, which can really complicate trying to understand the nature of a problem. So it, it just has all kinds of repercussions. Uh, but very frankly, simply, it's, it creates an environment that one is not going to flourish and grow in psychologically. Uh, if one stays in that environment, probably you're going to begin to see some low-grade depression and people who are going to be uh, just simply trying to cope. So let me ask you a two-part question. I know that people here in the hospital recognize you as, as an expert and someone who can really help them deal with some of these issues. How do you address these issues on a personal level? and? Relatedly, how do you counsel leaders to address the disruptive behavior in the workplace? Well, on a personal, professional level, you'd like to do it with confidentiality, of course, being key, uh, so that somebody may come in and, you know, the, like with all types of issues, 
I've found over the years of my now almost 40 years of experience that if people don't want to own it or address it or even acknowledge it, being forced by a supervisor, let's say, into some kind of remediation or coaching situation is problematic in itself because they're already into resistance. Uh, They don't want to be there. And so their ability to listen, own something, have insight, and perhaps be flexible in order to change, all of that has probably been compromised because they just simply don't want to be there. If they come to some realization that they could use some help, uh, let's say because they find themselves having a short fuse or what have you, talking to somebody trained, not just me, I mean, there are lots of good people in the system who would be available, supervisors and others, uh, and sitting down confidentially and being able to say, you know, I do realize that I've, you know, I've been short with people or I've, I've, I've said some things that I think are out of place or that I find myself uh, really snapping uh, at people. We try to find out what might be the trigger for those things. Could be something in terms of stress. Uh, it's certainly a stress-filled environment. It could be in terms of we all have um, uh, some triggers or some hot buttons that can get pushed. Uh, Just simply identifying those and naming or labeling them can help us to gain some control over them. Being able to see cause and effect uh, can uh, be very, very uh, valuable. Uh, I always look for three things when working with individuals. One, I look for insight, I look for ownership, and I look for flexibility. If If I can see those things uh, occurring as we go through the dialogue process and the conversation, then um, I'm hopeful that, you know, incrementally people can begin to change. We're not looking for perfection, but we are looking for an honest conversation where perhaps we can address the fact that we need to, uh, to gain more uh, discipline over ourselves uh, and to be able to recognize what might be unsaid by the way in which we're responding in a reactive way. And so we may not be addressing a need or some concern or uh, that we're not satisfied with something. And so our less productive way of handling it uh, may be more symptomatic than cause. So, um, you know, there, it, it, dealing with people is always complicated and it can be multiple uh, possibilities here. We carry baggage from our past. We may not have the the behavioral repertoire we need to be able to respond to situations in the moment. We need to practice maybe with a coach to be able to 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 anticipate things and to develop alternative ways of responding. So there's just so many things that's possible. So there's much more that could be said about that. With regard to that second question about leaders and how to help them, perhaps the first place to begin is with a rather devastating statistic. And that is that over and over again, it's been replicated many times that, and again, generically speaking, about 80% of leaders or people in leadership uh, positions tend to be conflict avoidant to some degree. They don't really want to deal with it. It's the part of the job they don't really enjoy. And yet I would argue that if you get promoted into supervision or into management, that you're dealing basically with personality and conflict. That just inherently goes with the job. And so your ability to be able to sustain on a day-in, day-out basis the fact that you're going to have to work with personalities and people who have different levels of conflict is just simply going to be something you have to come 
to terms with, you really want to do the job and then hopefully even enjoy the job. So the first thing is, does the, the leader even see what's out there? And secondly, do they have the skill set training that would begin to help them to be very good at listening, very good at unpacking somebody's conflict, at being able to help somebody to uh, rehearse perhaps alternative ways of behaving in a situation? And staying with it long enough, it can't be, you don't just give people advice in this area. You have to do much more than that. You have to be able to roll up your sleeves and be able to say, I'm going to work with you on this and, and try to help you to be able to, uh, to to get beyond it. Giving people ultimatums is is not a very productive thing. It's really a way people escape the responsibility of dealing with uh, really trying to learn uh, ways to be able to handle conflict. So it is possible for professionals, whether leader or otherwise, to become better conflict managers. Oh, absolutely. And the way you said that is absolutely the right way to say it. I move away from the term conflict resolution because it implies there's going to be closure and we're going to settle this because it often can't be done. I mean, sometimes it can be done, but it's very complex. Every manager should be at least minimally well-trained in conflict management skills be it listening and reframing and uh, the targeted empathy and certainly dialogue, which we've not really talked much about. And very quickly, what is dialogue? Dialogue, which I consider an unnatural way for us to talk. It's not something that comes easy and naturally to us. Is about openness and it's about uh, a lot of questioning and uh, about listening to the other side. We're listening for understanding. We're not listening in order to be able to make a counterpoint. And so by listening for understanding and dialogue, we're trying to uh, to try to understand where somebody may be coming from. And uh, we're not trying to put our assumptions out there, which are really conclusions. We're really trying to find out what somebody else's construction may be and then trying to figure out how we might be able to work with that or to be able to see where the points of contact may be. Uh, and if there are some, then where are they and can we build upon them? And if there are none, uh, why are there none and what does that all mean? And can we... And we maybe build some points of contact through dialogue. Dialogue is the way to solve a problem. And uh, this is a skill set that leaders must, in fact, it's a prerequisite skill in my mind that leaders have to be able to have with regard to working with their folks. So, Dr. Picchioni, I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to let you answer it. Do you find your services to be in great demand? (laughs) In great demand. (laughs) Yeah, in great demand. Yeah. Conflict is not going away from birth to death. We are in conflict. It's a natural part of the human experience uh, in the work environment and particularly in environments like healthcare. It is just a constant. We shouldn't be afraid of it. We should move towards it, not away from it. We should uh, try to uh, listen to what the conflict has to teach us. Uh, and we need to be able to make that distinction between constructive and destructive conflict. Dr. Picchioni, thanks so much for talking with me today. It's been very insightful, and I wish you the best in your work. That concludes this episode of Stats. Be on the lookout for the next episode of Sharing the Accomplishments of Temple Surgery.